Hi, this is a Room Now podcast for April 28th, 2023. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. Coming up this week on Tuesday Night Rheumatology, it's a new series. It's the replay of Room Now Live 2023. You know, Room Now Live, it happened in March, but we've been saving up the content. We're going to roll it out all throughout the month of May. So starting next Tuesday, May 2nd, we're going to replay the rheumatoid arthritis pod called Revolutionary Advances in Rheumatoid Arthritis. In this session, we'll hear talks from Dr. Kevin Dean, University of Colorado, about preclinical RA and new thinking and new treatments. We're going to also hear from Dr. Stan Cullen at UT Southwestern talking about all things Jack. Tremendous growth of the JAK inhibitors in the last few years. And the session wraps up with Dr. Michael Brenner from Harvard talking about the pathogenesis of RA. This is an eye-opening session. I think you're going to love it. Be there for the webinar Tuesday night, 7 p.m. Eastern. That's 4 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Central. Uh, Look for the invite or look for it on YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, or, of course, Twitter. So this week, we've got a few reports, and we've got a few questions from Ask Kush Anything. Let's begin with a Danish National Registry study that looked at the risk of cancer associated with JAK inhibitors. As you know, this has been kind of a big issue since the publication of the oral surveillance study with tofacitinib that led to boxed warnings for major adverse cardiac events and malignancy risk associated with JAK inhibitors. But the question is, is it backed up by other data? There's a lot of population-based data and sort of retrospective studies that don't really show that. And this is another study. This is a very good database. The Danish registry um, is notorious for having very accurate sort of complete data. They compared RA patients, 875 of them, that were taking JAK inhibitors compared to 4,200 on just a, an other, another biologic DMARD. And the rates of cancers were the same, 14 versus 13 per 100 patient, per 1,000 patient years. Uh, And therefore, the hazard ratio was not significant. So this is another bit of data. The problem is that this is a retrospective analysis of existing data. It doesn't really compare to the oral surveillance, a prospective study of almost you know, over 4,000 patients followed for over four years, high-risk individuals out to prove a point that actually was proven. So you're going to see a lot of studies that basically say, no, we're not seeing MACE events. No, we're not seeing cardiac events. I think you've got to take the data from the better study, which is oral surveillance, which does say in high-risk individuals, which turns out to be largely people over 65, not the over 50 that was enrolled, over 65 with a prior cardiovascular event like an MI, um, and then the other risk factors get thrown on top of that. In that case, JAK inhibitors did worse than TNF inhibitors, or did TNF inhibitors do better than JAKs? It's a moot point, is it not? Anyway, this study, for those of you who are looking for an excuse to disregard that data, I'm telling you, this is a bad excuse. I like the study. It's quality data, but it still is a retrospective study. A Brazilian study looked at mortality risk in childhood or pediatric lupus. Very large cohort from Brazil, 1,500 patients with pediatric um, lupus. And, and thankfully, the mortality rates when they followed these kids for, I think it was three to five years, was low at only 4.1%. Um, now, that is maybe low, but still, 
isn't four percent of kids um, dying from lupus still shocking? Um, so 63 total deaths in the group. They were m- mostly female. The average age was 12 years. The time to death from the onset of lupus to death was relatively quick, 3.2 years. What do they die from, you ask? What other lupus patients are dying from? Number one, sepsis. Uh, in this group, number two, sepsis, 43% of the deaths. Number two, 11% opportunistic infections. And number three, quite surprisingly to me, is pulmonary hemorrhage at 10%. The predictors of mortality in lupus was the presence of chronic kidney disease, a fourfold higher risk, and those who had neuropsychiatric or CNS lupus with a 2.6-fold higher risk. Um Managing pediatric lupus is actually harder than managing adults with lupus. But bad lupus is bad lupus, is it not? Another population-based study. We're in a population-based review here. A Finnish population study looked at JIA patients, over 4,000 of them, followed for over six years. And they were looking at, um, you know, associated comorbidities. They found 13% of JIA patients who were prescribed psychotropic drugs. That's 13% of children, and these are JIA. Um, The number of psychotropic drugs prescribed to a control, non-JIA, age-matched control, was a little less than 10%. So this was highly significant. Antidepressants were the main drugs amongst the psychotropic um, agents that were used, uh, and antidepressants were mostly used in women or females, in this cohort. Again, we've talked about it before. Depression is a deadly complication, a really bad complication for inflammatory arthritis. And it's not surprising given the the difficulty in dealing with chronic disease. You know, kids who develop these chronic autoimmune or chronic inflammatory arthritis conditions do have higher rates of um, psychologic adjustment disorders and sometimes higher rates of depression. That's, I think, what's being inferred here, although they didn't specifically look at depression. They looked at the maybe depression bad enough to get drugs, 13% versus 10%. Uh, how much does it cost to make a drug? You know, I used to say a um, billion dollars in 10 years. That number's gone up. I've heard estimates as high as, you know, four to 10 billion. A recent analysis published just today in JAMA says that um, of NIH generated drugs that ultimately became first in class FDA approved drugs, the NIH cost in developing those drugs uh, was roughly 1.4 to 1.7 billion dollars. They didn't talk about the time to develop it because usually the NIH getting involved in drug development then leads to it being handed off to a commercial sponsor who then further develops it. When you compare the NIH investment of 1.4 1.7 billion, it's not that different than what industry spends, the pharmaceutical industry, in developing its own FDA-approved products, which is at 1.5. Now, a lot of ways of, of slicing the actual cost here, but uh, the authors in this analysis said it's interesting that the government spends a lot of money in developing drugs that uh, and basically are the early investors in what later becomes a pharmaceutical company innovation. And maybe, in many instances, the government agency, in this case the NIH, um, bears about half the cost of total research and development investments. 
Again, drugs are very expensive to develop, and they do take a long time. Uh, I think the NIH should be involved in drug development, drug discovery. I think it's an important way of, of moving science forward. Uh, an interesting uh, report uh, about the association between osteoporosis and diabetes. They both affect the elderly. But in this case, it's really about the drugs used to treat osteoporosis that um, had an impact on the development of diabetes. The British Medical Journal reports on a large UK database analysis of adults over age 45 compared those with osteoporosis who were treated with either denosumab, uh, and that was 4,300, versus 21,000 treated with oral bisphosphonates. And uh, the mean duration of treatment in this analysis was over two years. What they found was lower rates of adult-onset non-insulin-dependent diabetes in the denosumab-treated population compared to bisphosphonates. 5.7 versus 8.3 new incident diabetes cases per 1,000 patient years. That's a 32% lowering of risk. That is significant. Um, further significant and even more significant was when you did the same analysis showing that denosumab lowered the risk in those classified as having prediabetes where the risk was lowered by 46% with a hazard ratio of 0.54. The question is, how do it know? How does it happen? What's the mechanism involved here? Really not known. It's not the purpose of the paper. The discussion does go into the fact that um, rank ligand, which obviously is what um, denosumab is targeting, uh, is involved in metabolic pathways and that there are some large population-based data showing that very high levels of rank ligand is associated with gigantic risks, um, maybe five-fold higher risks of diabetes when applied to a population. So there is probably um, a physioimmunologic mechanism here that's not been spelled out, but stay tuned. We'll hear about that, I guess, in the future. An interesting report nonetheless. Another great report comes uh, on the incidence of gout rising in Asian Americans. This is an analysis of over 22,000 people in the NHANES survey, uh, which happens periodically in the United States, 2011, 2012, they did a, one survey. They did a repeat in 2017, 2018. And in this analysis, they looked at what the incidence of gout was when you looked at this large population that was surveyed and extrapolate to the U.S. The numbers in 2018 is that the America has 12.1 million patients with gout. That's a crude prevalence that rose from 2012 to 2018 from 3.6% to 5.1%. We've talked before about the rising rates of gout in U.S. and U.K. and Australian populations, largely based on the rising rates of obesity. But there may be other factors that are involved here. Maybe it's genetics and epigenetic changes. Um, maybe it's just pure dietary changes. Um, Asian Americans, Asians are known to be a, 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 an at-risk group. Um, and certainly there are certain genetic groups um, in, amongst the Asians. But this is a study of uh, Asian Americans. And specifically what they showed was while the U.S. incidence rose from 3.6 to 5.1 during the same time frame, um, the prevalence of gout in Asian Americans rose from 3.3 to 6.6, surpassing the U.S. average of 5.1%, thereby surpassing 
Asian Americans surpassing all other risk groups, Hispanics, African Americans, and whites, as of 2018. This is sort of a um, dynamic trend data that shows um, that's really important. You know, I, for many years, I think most of my gout patients were largely um, uh, African Americans and Caucasians. Um, I would say in the last 10 years of my practice, I have seen more Asians uh, who emigrated or who were raised here. Uh, and the reasons for that are not entirely clear. Another tidbit from this NHANES survey data says that amongst U.S. individuals over age 10, over age 65, 10% um, of whites have gout. And that if you look at that, um, the, so that's the adjusted prevalence. It's 14.8% in Asians as of 2018. If you look at Asian men, it's 24%. These are numbers you need to know about. So we have three cases we're going to discuss today. The first case comes from Rosenberg, Oregon, Dr. Polly Sepulvato. Um, Dr. Sepulvato um, sends me a case with this question. A 50-year-old female with seropositive RA treated with methotrexate and an infliximab biosimilar developed septic risk due to strep infection. The aspirate of the synovial fluid from the wrist was 200,000 WBCs. Uh, the patient was treated with uh, incision, drainage, irrigation, and IV antibiotics. The patient had previously failed treatment with adalimumab, sertilizumab, and leflunamide. The question is, how would you proceed? And maybe the unasked subtext question is, well, would you give her um, a TNF inhibitor again? First off, I would never give the same drug that caused a serious infection and a hospitalizable event to the patient. It's bad juju, bad voodoo. It's patients themselves will logically say, isn't that crazy that he wanted to do that? So you would never use it. Secondly, I wouldn't use another TNF inhibitor. This person has failed three TNF inhibitors. I think after you fail two, you don't get a third in my clinic. Um, and what's not said in this, in this particular case is why did this patient get septic arthritis? By just giving me information about the drugs, you're inferring that this is due to drugs. I'm going to tell you this is due to bad RA. And this was due to damaged joints. And this was due to having either had a prior septic arthritis or in serious infectious event, or the patient was also on steroids, not otherwise mentioned. But let's say the patient is not on steroids, and this was the first infection. That's good. The bad news is if you've had a serious infectious event, you're likely to get it again. And why would you get it again? Well, you're kind of set up to do so. Your only way of avoiding future infections is to fully eradicate the infection the first time around and then to maximally control the inflammatory disorder. So what would I do? Um, I would obviously get the patient off of steroids. Um, I would make sure that the infection was resolved. And But the patient's doing badly now. She needs to be, on, according to ACR guidelines, the patient needs to be on combination DMARDs. No reason she can't be on, you know, methotrexate, hydroxychloroquine, with or without sulfazalazine. But frankly, she needs another drug to add on. Um, I would add on maybe the safest of all the newer therapies in the last uh, 20 years, and that would be abatacept. When you look at infectious risk events, uh, infectious events, serious infectious events, probably lowest with the with abatacept. 
probably highest with steroids. Next highest maybe with rituximab. In between would be everything else. But I would use um, methotrexate, hydroxychloroquine. I put them on abatacept. Or I would consider the use of even a JAK inhibitor. Maybe the patient's going to associate IV therapies never worked very well for me. And the last one gave me a septic arthritis. I'm just going to be treated now with oral agents, which are thought to be safe. But maximal control. Now, this patient is still at a higher risk because she's already had another event. You can calculate the risk and put in all the risk factors like age, prior events, steroid dose, etc. Um, by going to the rabbit risk calculator. That's, that's a German registry. It's, um, the website is https colon slash slash biologica with a K dash register R-E-G-I-S-T-E-R dot D-E slash E-N for English. And you can put in patient variables and it'll calculate the risk that this patient has based on the therapy you choose and the risk of getting a serious infection event in the next 12 months. I'm going to tell you, based on the profile I see here, this patient has at least, no matter what you do, a 20% risk of recurrence. So why not get rapid control of the disease with the, some of these suggestions I've mentioned? That's how I would manage this case. The next two cases are recordings. Let's, um, let's listen to them. The first one is from Dr. Ken Wasser in New Jersey. This is Kenneth Wasser. I'm a rheumatologist in New Jersey. My brother is a retired oncologist in Connecticut who has alopecia universalis. He is also suffering from hearing loss, and we surmise that it might be due to the loss of hair cells in the ear canal. Any experience with this entity and any experience with JAK2 inhibitor correcting this potential problem? Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Wasser. That's a really uh, uh, interesting case. We do hope your brother gets better with your advice. Um, number one, um, JAK inhibitors are tremendously effective in treating alopecia universalis. That would be the worst variant of alopecia areata. As you know, of all the JAK inhibitors, they've all been studied. The original studies were done with tofacitinib at high doses, 10 milligrams BID. But the first drug to get approved is baricitinib. And that's currently approved for alopecia areata, so therefore he's more likely to get that paid for by his insurance. Um, I've treated a number of patients with alopecia universalis um, with Tofacitinib, usual dose, baricitinib, usual and high dose. I uh, have not gotten around to using a patacitinib, but I'm certainly it's going to work. Same thing for ruxolotinib. They all are going to work. It really matters, you know, getting the right dose and getting it approved by the insurance company. The interesting scenario here is the hearing loss that he and his brother wonder if it's loss of the hair cells that are that mediate sound in the inner ear. And um, if you do a literature search on this, you'll find that amongst patients with mainly alopecia areata, where there's the most of the data, there are a fair number of cases of hearing loss. Um, most of it's thought to be uh, related, as you maybe suggest, to loss of hair within the ear, um, those sensors that are involved in hearing. 
others have outright said that this is an autoimmune hair loss. Therefore, not surprising that one autoimmune disease, alopecia areata, alopecia universalis, is associated with another autoimmune disease, in that being autoimmune hearing loss. I would definitely use a JAK inhibitor, and and you're going to probably find out relatively quickly whether if it is a hair cell um, phenomenon, that should correct itself. Maybe not as fast as the skin corrects itself, which is usually, in my my experience, six to twelve weeks. You start to see really substantial hair growth. Um, it might, the, the hearing could take a little bit longer, but patients I've had who were totally Totally bald. Women, no eyelashes, no hair anywhere. Um, hair growth seen, you know, peach fuzz at four weeks, um, palpable peach fuzz at eight weeks, um, short hair at 12 to 16 weeks, uh, six month of full head of hair, often coming back in a bizarre kind of way, meaning they were a brunette to start with and now they're all gray. Or, you know, it parted this way, before and afterwards it parts that way or now it's curly when it was once again uh hair that comes back is a new head of hair and it comes back as long as they stay on the jack inhibitor it's not like they can be treated you can stop it and it'll go away you stop the jack inhibitor the hair falls out and they go back to their hairless state so you're looking at an evaluation for chronic therapy with a jack inhibitor let's move on to the last case this comes from uh dr shams in um, Pakistan. Uh, you start this question oh. on JAK inhibitors. Oh my goodness. My second question is? Um, Dr. Shams has two questions. One, if a patient has a herpes zoster, can you use a JAK inhibitor? And the second question is, if you're not, and now we're talking about another patient, no herpes zoster, if a patient is treated with JAK inhibitors and they elevate their lipids, can you continue to use the JAK inhibitor? So first question, zosters and JAKs. Yes, the rate goes up higher, you know, four to tenfold higher on JAK inhibitors. I don't use JAK inhibitors unless I get someone vaccinated against zoster. Um, now, there are some people you just can't get it paid for. But in the United States, it costs about $130, $140 for two shots of the recombinant zoster subunit vaccine um, and that works very very well patients who had zoster can get zoster again especially if they're on jack inhibitors so yeah i would have pre-treated this person if someone had zoster i would resolve the issue and yes i would go back to a jack inhibitor but i would vaccinate them just because they've had zoster doesn't mean that they've acquired fully protected um, natural immunity. Um, so your options here are avoid the JAK inhibitor because they've had zoster or vaccinate them. In the United States, we, do no, we no longer have the live virus vaccine. Uh, we only have the recombinant vaccine. I'm not sure what's available in Pakistan. If you have the old Zostavax, um, you can give that. Uh, and after you've given that, you can um, start the JAK inhibitor after that. Second question, JAK inhibitors do cause elevated lipids, just like IL-6 inhibitors, about a 20% risk in people who've never had hyperlipidemia. It's a pan 
um, lipid elevator, triglycerides, LDL, HDL, VLDL, all of them, right? Studies have shown that JAKs and IL-6 that increase lipids don't necessarily have higher rates of cardiovascular events. Nonetheless, if someone has substantial elevations of lipids on JAKs, you treat them. Conversely, what happens is that RA patients who have hyperlipidemia, who are taking a statin, for instance, who get a JAK inhibitor, they're sort of protected from having um, significant elevations in their lipids. So, yeah, I would treat with a statin um, and other measures because it's sort of good preventative medicine, um, uh, even though I know that a few population-based studies show that those patients with higher lipids do not necessarily have more cardiovascular events. Um, That's how I'd manage that situation. Be sure to watch next week on Room Now. It's going to be Room Now Live replays the first week, all dedicated to um, rheumatoid arthritis. That was all sponsored by AbbVie. Thank you.